now, from beyond our dimension, this is the Jeff Mara Podcast. Here's Jeff. My guest is Jeff Walton. Jeff is an afterlife investigator and author who brings his 35 years of national security and federal law enforcement experience to his studies of the afterlife. Jeff, thank you so much for joining us today and welcome. Well, thank you, Jeff. It's really an honor to be on your program. I'm excited to be here. Well, it's the Jeff and Jeff show today. That's right. (laughs) So how did you develop an interest in the afterlife in the first place? Well, it was a specific event that triggered it. It's not something I had an interest in, to be honest with you. I didn't have an out-of-body experience. I didn't have a near-death experience. But on the 9th of February, 2010, I was scheduled to fly from Jacksonville International Airport to Miami. And at the time, I was still a federal agent with NCIS. And because it was after 9-11, we were required to fly armed. And in order to fly armed, you had to get to the airport early. You had to go through a process, check in. You didn't go through normal security. And then you had to go to the departure gate early and be the first one on the plane so that you could introduce yourself to the pilot and the crew and they knew who you were and where you were sitting. So on the day in question, I got there extra early uh, and I was just bored. So I wandered around the airport and I went into the bookstore there which I'd been in many times before. And I saw a book that I had seen many times. And quite frankly, I thought it was as nonsense. It was a book entitled uh, 23 Minutes in Hell by Bill Weiss. And I thought, oh, this is crazy. Nobody leaves their body and goes anywhere. But since I had so much time and I, they had a program where you could read the book and bring it back and get a 50% um, refund and I have the receipt right here. I kept it. I went ahead and I bought the book. I took it to the gate and I sat down. And by the third chapter, I said to myself, this guy sounds like he's telling the truth. How can this be? And it's as if someone had flipped the light switch and that suddenly my eyes were open that I thought, oh my goodness, there really is an afterlife. There really is a heaven and a hell. And it had such a dramatic impact on me that when I got to my, my assigned location in Miami, that night, I finished the book in my health hotel room, and I was on my knees. I was on my knees, and at the time, I accepted uh, Christ. I was a follower of Christ right then and there. But the experience was so dramatic, so life-changing, that I, I as an investigator, I, I had to know, okay, what's behind this? Where's the evidence? How do I know this guy's telling the truth? It's an interesting book. It reads truthfully, but there's got to be more here. So that basically sent me on the trajectory that I'm on today. And that's why I'm on your show, because of that book. Is there anything specifically that you can tell us about his experience that just flipped the switch for you? I think it's the way he recited the facts. Now, as you mentioned in your intro, I have 35 years in federal law enforcement, criminal investigations, and with NCIS, I spent most of my time in counterintelligence and counterterrorism. And there you're trained and you develop expertise in detecting deception. And you do that through hundreds of interviews, debriefs, interrogations, and you learn how to read people. 
And you know when people are answering a question directly, whether they're giving you the truth and whether they're trying to be deceptive. And the way he wrote his book was so clear, so detailed, that either he was insane, he was a, a, a consummate con artist, or he was telling the truth. So that really set me off on my, uh, my journey, if you will, to investigate this and then other experiences that were very similar to his as well. Um, in my profession, you become very suspicious. You don't accept anything at face value. Quite frankly, you think everybody's lying. Mm -hmm. So that sort of mindset is what, what I used as I looked at his work, and then I looked at the work of others. And I, I want to say one thing at the, at the beginning here, that as I began my work, it wasn't about me. You know, I put out my background so that people can assess me and understand where I came from and what my training experience is. But I'm not trying to prom promote me. My goal is to promote the truth. So you said earlier that he had to be either insane or telling the truth. Is there anything that made you decide, okay, this guy is not insane? Yeah, it was the continuity of his, his story and the detail. And as I dug, I found other work that corroborated what he was saying. It wasn't as if, as if this was a one-off experience and he was expecting everyone to believe. I started to dig. And as I mentioned, I, I first read the book on the 9th of February, 2010. And that summer, I hit mandatory retirement. So I had to retire. <clears throat> and instead of um, taking another full-time job, what I did is I basically devoted my time and effort to a, a full-time a full investigation. So I started to dig in. And I started to see that the sheer volume of reporting from all different people, from all walks of life, told me that these weren't just experiences that were chemical reactions in the brain. They weren't hallucinations. Because if you have a bad dream or you hallucinate, you don't remember all the detail. And they certainly aren't life-changing in most cases. So his experience and other experiences that I started to read about told me that, okay, there is something here that really should be investigated dispassionately with an objective open mind. So that really propelled me to where I was going. Hmm. And as I, as I dug, I started to find medical doctors, scientists who are doing peer reviewed studies of NDEs. So I said, okay, this, this is more corroboration. And then I started to read about what is called veridical perception. And what veridical means is truthful or coinciding with reality. And there's a doctor by the name of Dr. Uh, Pim Van Lamel. He's a European doctor. He did a study. And one of his subjects uh, had cardiac arrest, and then he went into a deep coma. And when he came out of his coma, he told the attending nurse, can you please get my dentures out of the bottom drawer over there out of that cabinet? And she said, well, how do you know where your dentures are? You were in a coma when we took those out. He said, ma'am, I watched you do it. Mm -hmm. I, was at the, I was at the top of the ceiling in the corner of the room watching you working on me. There's another very famous uh, incident where a, a woman died of cardiac arrest in Washington State. And when she died, she left her body. She traveled outside of the building 
she went up three stories on the north side of the building and she saw a shoe on a, on a, on a ledge that was not visible from the ground. And when she was resuscitated, she was interviewed by a psychologist who was on the hospital staff. And she told the psychologist about the incident and it fascinated this psychologist. So she searched the hospital and she finally went up on the third floor on the north side of the building, opened the window, and there it was. Mm-hmm. Here was this dark brown or dark blue tennis shoe, exactly as this woman had described, exactly where the lace was under the shoe, as she mentioned, and with the exact scuff marks that this woman saw. It's physically impossible to do that. So here you have, in my, my line of work, this is very, very strong circumstantial evidence that confirms these incidents are taking place. But I also noticed a trend um, that I only read about uh, very blissful NDEs. And there are very many, as, as you know, and your viewers know. But I said to myself, okay, Bill Weiss went to hell. Why aren't people talking about hell? Where isn't that happening? So as I dug, I started to, to see that actually there are some accounts um, and I found a doctor by the name of Dr. Maurice Rawlings, who has uh, since passed away. But Dr. Rawlings was a cardiologist. He had a patient in his clinic who was undergoing a stress test on a treadmill. He had his patient hooked up to the monitoring equipment. And while the patient was running, he had a massive heart attack and collapsed on the treadmill. And immediately, Dr. Rawlings and his nurse had to attend to him use CPR, and he revived him. And the patient was screaming, I'm in hell, I'm in hell. And then he died again. And then Dr. Rawlings revived him him a second time. And again, he said, I'm in hell. He's screaming, hysterical. He died one more time. He came back and he said, doc, pray for me, pray for me. I don't want to go to hell. And Dr. Rawlings, who was an atheist at the time, was indignant. He said, I'm a doctor. I'm not your spiritual advisor. Don't come to me for that. I'm here to save your life, man. And the nurse said, doctor, pray for this man, will you? He's praying. He wants you to pray for him. So Dr. Rawlings made up some prayer right on the spot. The patient instantly relaxed. He died one more time. And then when he came back, he was very calm and peaceful. And Dr. Rawlings said, well, you said you were in hell. What happened? And the patient said, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't even remember that. And from that day forward, Dr. Rawlings was a changed man, and he wrote a book called To Hell and Back and was on a crusade to warn people that, look, there is an afterlife, and you're going to go one place or another. And I can tell you from personal experience with my patients that it happens in both directions. Let me ask you this. Sure. I've had um, at least a handful of people that have had hellish experiences during their NDEs, and I've had some... um, hypnotherapists talk about it as well. I think some people will believe that you actually go to a hell-like place, and then some people believe that it's a creation of your consciousness at that time. Do you? Which do you believe? I believe it's an actual physical place. There are many, many witnesses, many of whom you don't hear about. Uh, your guests may be, or, or rather your viewers may see some very basic testimonies on YouTube, but I've talked to people who have been to hell and it is a physical place 
where you feel physical pain, you have all of your senses, and it is absolutely a physical location. We can talk about that a little bit more, but um, it is it is not a spiritual dimension, if you will. It's a place where your body, your spirit, and your soul congeal into a physical form, just as they do in heaven. Now, in heaven, you'll probably be 30, 35 years of age, or you could be your actual age at the time of death, mm-hmm. but you'll be a perfect physical specimen. You'll feel the best you ever had. You'll have 360-degree vision, and you'll feel love like you've never felt in your life, and that comes from God. Conversely, if you go to hell, you will have a physical body. And as some of your guests have described to you, you have a skeleton, you have a muscle tissue, connective tissue, and you have skin. And all of that is affected by what happens to you in hell. You feel it. And in hell, just as in heaven, you have recuperative powers that are much greater than you have in your physical body. And let's say you're burned and your skin is burned off. Well, in some cases, witnesses will tell you that that skin grows right back. It grows back right before your eyes. And unfortunately, you're intact again to go through the same experience that you had gone through previously. So it is absolutely a physical location, in my opinion. What do you think about this? I've had a few of my guests who have went to hell. They've stated that if you if you call out to God and or Jesus, you can get out of hell. Do you right. agree with that? Yes, I do. Under one circumstance, one condition. And I agree. If you look at uh, Bill Weiss, if you look at uh, Brian Melvin, who I'll talk about uh, a little bit later, if you look at uh, other individuals who have cried out to Jesus, he has saved them. Also, Howard Storm, my descent into hell. He was an atheist, but he called out to Christ and he was rescued. But I think what is happening in those cases is that people are physically dying before their appointed time. If you die at your appointed time and you don't have a relationship with with Christ, he doesn't know who you are, you basically have a homing device that sends you to hell. But if it is not your appointed time, let's say you were the victim of a a crime that someone perpetrated, or you were in an accident that was simply an accident, and it's not your time, you go to hell, you can cry out to Christ if you're sincere, and he'll rescue you. But if you're at the end of your life and you're at that moment where you're supposed to die, it's too late. So since you've never personally experienced an NDE, what skills and knowledge do you rely on to study NDEs? Well, it's it's using the investigative techniques that I developed over years. And one of one critical aspect of doing any kind of an investigation or an operation where you're debriefing an asset is you have to have face-to-face contact with a witness under Um, controlled conditions, so you don't have any distractions, you don't have noise, and you have to be able to assess them. Uh, People have uh, giveaway cues with their body language when they're deceptive. And as I said earlier, if they're not responsive to your questions, if they try to evade or they try to change the subject, or if they have a very well-defined story, and then you start to ask them specific details about that story, if they're telling the truth, they can answer it. They don't have to think. They don't have to stop. They don't have to have to and and say to themselves, well, what did I say before? It just comes out. And so what I did during my my investigative phase, and I'm still in it, quite frankly, is I first I sought out Bill Weiss. 
I contacted him. I told him, hey, this is who I am. This is what I'm doing. I'd like to meet you. And I'd like to meet your wife because his wife is actually a witness. Because when he had his out-of-body experience, he left his body at 3 a.m. And at 3.23, his wife heard screaming in the living room. And so she looked at the clock. It was 3.23 a.m. And the bed was empty. So she went into the living room and Bill was curled up in a fetal position, screaming his head off. She thought he was having a heart attack. But then he told her, I've been in hell. I've been in hell. So I wanted to see and I wanted to see if Bill could remember the details. So I tracked him down to a, um, a presentation that he was doing in Daytona, Florida. So I drove down. I sat in the audience. I watched how he presented his, his story. And by the way, he didn't charge any speaking in, any speaking fee. He didn't ask to have his expenses paid. He did sell books, but I can tell you as an author, you don't make that much. So he was there basically at his own expense. And then at the end of the presentation, I pulled him and his wife aside and I, and I started to ask questions. I looked him in the eye. I knew what I wanted to know. And he never missed a beat. And like I said, I, when you've been face to face with criminals and spies and terrorists for 30 years, you know, usually you can be fooled. We're all fooled once in a while, but you know if they're telling the truth. And Bill Weiss was telling the truth. And so that led me to other witnesses. I mentioned Brian Melvin. I found his book, and I don't know if your viewers are familiar, but Brian wrote a book called uh, A Land Unknown, Hell's Dominion. And Brian was a militant atheist. He lived in Northern Virginia. He relocated to Tucson, Arizona. He got hired by a construction company. He was on the job in the heat of uh, Arizona in the summer, and he took a drink out of a thermos on a uh, construction truck. And he didn't realize it, but that water was contaminated with cholera. So he went home and he got real sick. And by the next day, he was in real bad shape. He was sharing a townhouse with his buddies and they went on a tour to the Grand Canyon and left him behind. And by noon, he was dead. He left his body. And it's funny because his dog was barking. His dog was looking up at him as he ascended through the ceiling. Somehow the dog could sense his spirit and soul leaving his body. So Brian traveled through this dark abyss toward this pinpoint of light. And when he got closer, this light got brighter, and he saw that there was this hooded figure standing on this rock that was just jutting out into this dark abyss. And as he got closer, this being telepathically communicated with him. And Melvin realized, this is, this is Christ. So he, he collapsed. He landed on the rock. He collapsed at the foot of Christ. Christ had a hood over his, his face. He, you couldn't see his face, but he emanated this blinding light. And Christ reached out with his hand and took his robe and wiped the tears from Melvin's face. And Melvin uh, observed something, which I'm going to talk about a, a few minutes uh, later. But basically what Christ did was say, look, you've you spent your whole life bad-mouthing me and my father. So I'm going to show you what the, the afterlife is really like. So he turned to his left. He parted some mist, and this door appeared. And he pulled out this big keychain with, with keys on it, and he used a key to open the door. Now, there's actually a path, passage in uh, uh, Revelation that states he holds the keys 
to death in Hades. And I always thought, oh, that's just some figurative language. Though. But I would tell you that it's probably literal. So essentially what happened is the door opened. Melvin went through the door. He floated into this vortex that transported him into this strange place. It had a yellow sky, spongy grass, one big tree, and a brick house. And all these people came running up to him. And he knew some of them. And he looked around, and there were some deceased family members. But then he saw two of his buddies that were at the Grand Canyon. And he said, wait a minute. I know you're not my buddies, but they're not dead. And then someone grabbed his arm to try to distract his attention. But he watched these these two things change their appearance to other people. Then he realized, I'm I'm not in heaven. So long story short, one of the one of these people changed into sort of a a reptilian like creature, about four foot eight. And this creature reached to the horizon and parted it like you'd part curtains and stepped out of it. And Melvin followed and he looked, he turned back and he looked, he had been in, in a cube in a box about 10 feet by 10 feet. And holographically, this huge expanse was projected onto the walls of this cube. And when he looked outside, he saw that he was in this enormous spiral pit that had spiral grooves carved into the perimeter. And in those huge grooves were these cubes that were stacked six cubes high and six cubes deep. And he, were, he walked along these cubes with this uh, escort, if you will. He could look in each cube. They were sort of a gelatin-like material that was a kind of a smoky appearance. But he could see through it. And telepathically, he could read the minds of each person in each cube. He could see what was going on. He knew the past of each of these individuals. And he saw that there were demons in these cubes that were masquerading as people that this person knew from their previous life. And whatever they did in the previous life that was sinful, they got it back. And during this entire experience, Melvin got these downloads from God, who basically said, look, you've been mocking me. You've been lying about me. Let me tell you why I created this place, why these people are here, and why these demons are here. And eventually, he was rescued by Christ. He went back to his body, he recovered, and then he since has spent his life going into prisons, Indian reservations, trying to tell people the truth of the afterlife. Now, he was so interesting to me, and his book had such a dramatic impact that I tracked him down and I set up a telephone interview. And so for about two hours on the phone, I asked him a series of detailed questions. He didn't miss a beat. And then about two years later, I flew out to Denver, Colorado, where he lives, and I spent an afternoon in a hotel room with him. And again, I basically did a very mild interrogation, if you will, friendly interrogation. He didn't miss a beat. The man's telling the truth. And when he gets to the point where he describes how Jesus rescued him, this big hulking man breaks down into tears. So it was that sort of information that I was seeking. I wanted to look face-to-face, eye-to-eye with these people to see, are they really telling the truth? Is, did this really happen? And the answer is yes. I'll briefly mention another individual that I also tracked down. His name is Howard Q. Pittman. Uh, 
Now, Howard passed away a few years ago, but Howard was previously a uh, Louisiana state trooper. And, and he also did a little bit of uh, part-time ministry on the side, but nothing, nothing big. Well, he died of an aneurysm and he was escorted to the second heaven by two angels. And some of your viewers will be familiar with the term second heaven. There's the third heaven. It's, this is described in the Bible. The third heaven is where God and the angels and everyone that are allowed into heaven exist where they reside. The second heaven is where Satan and his angels were cast into. It's a separate location. Now, based on multiple uh, testimonies, it's clear that Satan and the demons are able to travel from the second heaven down to earth, down into hell, and back up again. And what really got my attention were the specific descriptions of the demons that Pittman did. He described some of the demons looked like people, like businessmen wearing three-piece suits. Some of them were odd animals. But one of the categories that really got my attention were the war, warrior angels. These are angels that are about 10 feet tall. They're dressed like a Roman centurion. They have a helmet, a breastplate, a huge sword, 10 feet, 12 feet tall, bronze skin, and they're chiseled. And these are mean, very well-disciplined angels, and they march in formation. Now, I know some of your guests in the past have reported seeing that, and I found other near-death experience witnesses who saw the same thing. I mentioned Richard Sigmund, who wrote My Time in Heaven, which I consider to be the gold standard for an NDE and a description of heaven. Well, one of the things that he saw was uh, Christ took him to an area where there was this enormous formation of these warrior angels. Some of them were, again, 10 feet tall, and they were there by the thousands. So here you have independent corroboration, different people, different times, different experiences telling you the same thing. So to me, that was very, very strong corroboration and further evidence that these people are telling the truth. And I'll briefly mention one other individual. Some of your uh, viewers may be familiar with Jim Woodford. Jim is a uh, retired commercial airline pilot in Canada. And Jim took uh, one day took a prescription medication, but he, he misjudged the dosage. And while he was driving his pickup truck, he had to pull over to the side of the road and he died because of an adverse reaction. And he was escorted to, to heaven by two angels. And he was taken to an area where he could see the entrance to hell. He could see demons as well but he was ultimately taken into the the, um, uh, presence of Jesus. And uh, Jesus addressed him and they interacted. And when when I read his book, I had a question. So I contacted Jim by email. I said, Jim, I'd like you to answer a question for me. I said, when Jesus reached out to you, when you interacted with him, what did his hand and his arm look like? And he wrote back to me, he said, look, when he, he gestured toward me, and his robe was pulled back, I saw this irregular scar on his wrist. And I thought to myself, aha, this man's probably, this man's telling the truth. As I mentioned Brian Melvin earlier about him being in the presence of Christ, and Jesus reached out, took his hand, and used his robe to wipe Melvin's tears away. And when he did that, 
Melvin saw that he had this irregular wound in his wrists. And for your viewers who are familiar with Lee Strobel, who wrote a number of books, including A Case for Christ, Strobel interviews a medical doctor who's an expert on, on Roman crucifixion techniques. And this doctor states that Romans, when they crucified a victim, they used five to seven inch metal spikes and they drove the spikes through the wrist, not through the hand, because the tissue and bone structure in the hand is not strong enough to support the weight of a victim. And in the, in the language of uh, Jesus's time, the word hand included the wrist. So here you have two independent, totally unrelated witnesses corroborating the same small physical detail, which again adds to the body of evidence that these people are telling the truth. And I might add that, that your viewers that see all of the paintings where Jesus is on a cross and he's got the, the nails through his hand, that's not correct. It's so interesting that you say that because my guest yesterday had a past life regression where he was with Jesus and he said the same thing, that the nails went through his wrists, really, not through his hands. There you go. And yeah. one other thing to add is it shows on the cross, he's like on a platform or something. Right. But he said that's not correct either. He said that the, the legs actually went around the cross and they drove stakes through the ankles. Right. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Wow. So your guess, I would say, is factually correct. That's very interesting. I wasn't aware of that. Yeah. So while examining NDEs, do you study any other related topics? Yes. As I, as I read these detailed accounts, I read these scientific studies, you, if, if you read them, you accept them as these people are telling the truth. Then you have to accept that they're telling the truth about demons, about heaven, about hell, about God and Jesus Christ. That these people are just simply stating what they saw, what they experienced, who they met. They weren't making it up. So I, that drove me to look at the Bible, which, quite frankly, I I was not a, a big Bible reader. Matter of fact, there was a period of time where I, I didn't set foot in the church for 20 years. But I looked at the Bible through the lens of biology, archaeology, secular history, geography, and even on a very basic level, quantum physics. And as I drilled down and I read different passages and I, I looked at what modern science says and what various commentaries say, I found that uh, everything that is in the Bible, quite frankly, I can't refute, that it's factually correct. It's scientifically correct, that it's accurate. But what did really surprise me was the amount of material that is not discussed in the public domain. There's a tremendous amount of material that would make, that would leave no doubt in a person's mind if they were aware of it. But it's deliberately, in my mind, speaking of someone who used to engage in, engage in deception for the U.S. government, it's deliberately being held back so that people are kept in a state of ignorance. And they can be led to a certain conclusion. My, my feeling is, look at everything. Lay all the facts on the table. And then you as an individual can, can uh, make a decision as to what's true and what's not. Who is the one that's doing the deception or hiding those facts and why? Well, I think it's, I think it's um, quite frankly, it's our e educational institutions. I think it's done because of groupthink. Uh, a, a case in point. 
all of your viewers or most of your viewers believe in out-of-body experiences and near-death experiences. If you believe in that, then you're going to believe that your physical body is not all of you, that you have a spirit and a soul that can separate. Now, if we are just accidents, if we're just chemicals that mix together by accident and some primordial soup, and then as, as the saying is, you go from goo to you, what about the soul? What about the spirit? Where did they come from? Did they get mixed together accidentally? And of course, the, a, a thinking person would say, eh, that's, that's a stretch. No, I don't believe that. So there's a component to us that is being totally ignored. And unfortunately, the church, in my opinion, is, and I, I use that in a generic sense, most churches don't talk about the supernatural aspects of your being. And that's true for science as well. Unless you can test it, you can touch it, you can replicate it. Science doesn't want to touch it. But as you know, as your viewers know, thousands and thousands of people are coming back and saying, hey, you're, you're in a biological life suit or a, an earth suit, and you can detach, you can go other lo locations, and you have your senses, you have your memory, and you have your will. And it's totally different from this physical environment that you're in. Can you give us some examples of your findings that the audience might be surprised about? Well, again, again it gets back to the, the near-death experience and um, the ability to remember things. And I think those of your audience who are familiar with how near-death experiences um, take place, many people, or at least some people, uh, maybe 30 40%, have what's called a life review, where you're in the presence of a being of light, and they pull up your entire life. Now, for that to happen, your memory, your experiences basically have to be held in some sort of a, co a cosmic repository that's permeable. Uh, Howard Storm uh, coined the phrase, he said, you know, your consciousness is permeable. Your memory, your soul, all of that exists in a different place. So when... Um, for example, when Brian Melvin was in, in hell and he saw these demons who were taking the appearance of his friends, they had to get that appearance from somewhere. They pulled that from his repository, if you will, his database, and used it. So I, I know that's not a direct answer to your question. Mm -hmm. There isn't any physical, you can't perform an experiment and say, isolate a piece of your soul. Or, a, you know, a, a, you, can, you can't put your soul in a jar, but you can detach. And I'll give you an example. Um, well, first of all, your, your guests are probably aware of astral projection. How does that happen? You have to have separate components to your body. Uh, and so that tells you that there is a supernatural realm that allows you to leave your body, go to other locations and see things. Now, the U.S. government actually had, and I believe they still have it, now, I was not involved in it. I didn't have any official access to the program. But there's a book called Psychic Warrior by David Morehouse. And he was what is called a remote viewer. And what he did under very carefully controlled conditions in a special facility, he would lie very still in a special chair and he would detach his spirit and soul and he would go distant places. He'd go to a, a foreign country and look at a a military base and describe a weapon system. So again, for that to be able to happen, you have to have a supernatural component in your body. 
because his eyes, his ears, all his senses, his physical body was still in a chair in Fort Meade, Maryland, yet he was somewhere else, let's say in Russia, at a missile base, and he was describing in detail and late what he saw, and then later they could do overflights with a with a satellite or a spy plane and say, yeah, he's he's telling the truth. So that's circumstantial evidence to show that we're multi-component um, beings, we're triune beings. That's being ignored, unfortunately. It's not being studied by science, and it's being ignored by most of the church. But we, as human beings, we need to be aware of it. We need to ask questions about it. And when we can, try to get answers. I was checking out your website, and there you state that you don't agree with much of what Carl Sagan has written, but you do agree with a little. Can you tell us more about that? He's absolutely right. Um, we, we discover things, we examine things, and some things are of minor detail. They're nice to know. They give some clarity. They give some further weight to information and evidence, but they're not all the same. Um, so I agree with him in that perspective, from that perspective, but I don't agree with his statement that there is no evidence that once we die, that's it. There, there is evidence, as we all know, that once we die, there's plenty to be plenty to follow. There's much more in store for us than just physical death and darkness. Do you believe that there's evidence of God in plain sight? And if so, what is it? I believe that the creation is evidence of God in plain sight. And it gets back to my earlier comment about goo to you. When you start to break down with the modern technology that we have, with the electron microscopes and all of the very sophisticated instruments, when you look at a basic cell and you look at the mechanisms in those cells that are so incredibly complex, the chances of that happening by accident are zero, near zero. So if from the cell, you go to living organisms, whether it's an insect or a plant or a human being. So we have in plain sight, this incredible creation. This gets back to my comment earlier, that there, are, there is information that is, that is being withheld. An example is that there was a short documentary, a short video on the mechanics of the cell. And it's very, very easy to understand but it's amazing when you see the complexity of a cell, all the different little protein manufacturing facilities and the cleanup facilities and the transport facilities in one cell. And I, I was made aware that this one particular video was dropped by a major scientific institution that used to have the video. And you have to ask yourself, why would they drop it? They don't want people to see how complex a basic cell is. So back to your question, we're living in it. We're living proof of God's creative ability. We're here. We just are disconnected from it. We're culturally told, nah, this is all an accident. So after all your research, do you have any life lessons that you'd like to pass on to everyone? Yeah, I'd say first and foremost, what you believe about your life, about life in general, about the afterlife, and what actions that you take based on those beliefs, has unimaginable consequences. It's critically important to have as accurate view as possible of who you are, what you're made of, and where you came from. Because those 
basic ideas, that framework, that worldview, if you will, that will drive who you are and what you do. And if you go through life and you just sort of, uh, you're agnostic about everything, you're not going to have a good ending. But if you realize that you came from a creator, it's going to have an impact and it's going to drive you in a certain way. And related to that is we exist, as I said earlier, in both a physical plane and a supernatural plane. And that helps you better evaluate information, say, whether it's about evolution or whatever it may be, because you know there's more than just the cells of your body, that you're more than just carbon and and hydrogen and the various chemicals, that you have interwoven in your being a substance or a, um, a material that no one has ever quantified. Your soul and spirit are made out of something because they congeal into physical form in heaven and in hell. So if you keep that in the back of your mind, it will help you have a better life. It'll help you understand things better. It'll help you be more skeptical, if you will, when you hear claims that science has answered everything. Science hasn't answered everything. We're learning every day. And I would also say that whether you have any faith or not, whether you have any religious affiliation, there is a mountain of evidence in my humble opinion, that supports the veracity of the Bible. Again, I was shocked when I saw all the information, when I dug and I got into things such as the uh, decay rate of carbon-12 and the the age of the earth. Carbon-12 basically dissipates, it disintegrates at a set rate. And to find carbon-12, let's say in 500, uh, let's say 5,000 years, and I probably have the figure wrong, it basically disappears. So if you dig up a sample of coal or you dig up a diamond and you find carbon-12 in it and someone tells you that it's 50 million years old, that's false. Carbon-12 cannot exist for that long. The same thing with dinosaur bones. They're discovering dinosaur bones where they slice them apart, they put them under a microscope and they're finding tissue. They're finding uh, blood cells how in the world does that last for a hundred million years? And the short answer is it doesn't. You can bury any kind of being you want, any kind of an animal. You dig it up in 10 years, it's gone. The worms, the bacteria, everything is completely eaten it, destroyed it, it's gone. So to find a dinosaur with tissue in it and then say, well, it's, you know, it's, it's really a hundred million years old, but we, we can't explain why it's there. You need to say, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. And so let those sorts of truths, that sort of information that you evaluate, let that guide your life. Let that determine your worldview. And I think you'll have a better life and a much better afterlife. If you, if you open your eyes, you open your ears, question everything and seek the truth. I think that they use carbon dating to base the age of the planet and all things on planet. And is that what you're saying that? Is that what you're saying then, that carbon dating is wrong or carbon dating is only accurate to 5,000 years? No, I, I, I want to preface any comments that I make that I'm not an expert in carbon dating. And we're getting into an area where I would have to pull out my notes. But carbon dating is relatively accurate. But what is inaccurate is they make assumptions. They pull up a, a specimen and they say, well, this general area we believe it to be 50 million years old. And they'll arbitrarily come up with that as the baseline. 
Then they'll measure the carbon and other particles in whatever specimen they're looking at. And they adjust the age of that item to fit with their preconceived belief of the general area. Um, there are testing processes that are accurate, but again, it gets back to the interpretation. And I don't want to really answer any more because I simply don't have it in front of me. I'm not an expert, but I've looked at the studies. I've looked at the research and I'm convinced that if you objectively measure, whether you use radiometric, whether you use carbon dating, if you objectively use those dating methods, you're going to find the earth is a lot, a lot younger than people lead you to believe. What do you think is the most important choice that we will ever make in our lives and why? Oh, that's easy. Whether you believe in, in Christ, I know people don't want to hear that. They don't, they, you know, culturally it's, it's almost taboo, but your NDE witnesses, your guests, and the thousands and thousands of NDE witnesses have come back pretty much say the same thing. They've met Jesus. He exists. The evidence to support his crucifixion, his resurrection is very, very strong. And the people that go to hell, who have encounters with Jesus, who are given guided tours, who go to heaven, they come back with pretty much a consistent uh, testimony. God exists, hell exists, heaven exists. And it's not a matter of you following some detailed religious doctrine and following a lot of laws. It's basically a relationship. Would you let someone in your house, if you don't know them, if somebody knocked on your front door and said, hey, Jeff, I'm here to spend the night, you'd say, excuse me, do I know you? And they'd say, well, you know, you don't know me, but I know you're a good guy and I'm here to stay, spend the night. You're not going to let them in your house. That's the same thing with, with heaven. That's the same, same thing with Christ. And there's an added dimension to it. You know, people don't like to talk about sin. Well, we all have a moral code. We know that murder is wrong. We know that stealing is wrong. Well, that came from God. That wasn't just some sort of a, um, a development from cellular accidents. But sin is like a contaminant. And I think that people understand, certainly in this day and age with COVID, that disease contamination can have really big consequences. So essentially, unrepented sin is like a, like a virus. You don't want that into heaven. You don't want somebody who's going to come into the house and bring uh, a disease. In a sense, sin is a disease, and that's why you're excluded. Uh, the Christian faith is open to everybody. I don't even like to use the word Christian faith. It's, it's reality. We have a creator who's a triune being. He has a set of rules. He's very lenient. He's trying to reach you and I. He doesn't want to interfere with free will. That's why you don't have a big booming voice in heaven or in the, in the sky saying, I'm God and you better believe in me. Then all, all choice goes away. Then you know, okay, you have to be able to make the choice yourself. I know it sounds a little bizarre, but my years of, of digging and testing has led me to believe without question that God exists, Christ exists, and how he's been described is true. And if you want to get into heaven, have a conversation with a guy. Introduce yourself. Just talk to him like you talk to anybody else. Be humble, be honest, and you're not going to have any problems. What do you think inspires you about your work and drives you to keep going? Because I've reached a point where, as we've discussed earlier, 
I believe without question that hell exists. And I believe there are many, many good people on this earth who do not believe in hell. And that influences their, their actions and their beliefs. You know, Jeff, there's a um, George Barna. He's a pollster. He did a survey and he asked people, do you believe in heaven? Do you believe in hell, etc." And 76% said, yeah, I believe in heaven. And 71% said, yeah, I believe in hell. But of that 71%, only 32% believe that hell is a physical place. And of that 32%, less than 1% believes that it actually has fire that is used for torment. And when you see that, that statistic, and you realize that there are so many basically good people from by a human perspective, walking around totally oblivious to what's waiting for them. And when you listen to the accounts that your, your guests have told you on air, and when you read the books, you realize you want to stay out of hell without question. Absolutely. You've got to avoid it. It is horrible beyond belief. And you can stay out of it very easily by developing faith. So that drives me. I want people to at least to be exposed to the potential threat that they face. And if they want to disregard me, that's fine. If they want to poo-poo the, the information, the evidence, that's their, their, that's their call. But at least I want to get the information in their hands. And that's why I wrote my books. And even though they are novels, I've infused in those novels a lot of facts, a lot of information about NDEs. In my second book, I drill down into hellish NDEs. I try to make them entertaining. I try to bring people in so that they're, they have some enjoyment, but I want them to get the picture. I want them to get the facts. Hell exists. You better take it seriously and you better live accordingly because if you don't, you're in big trouble. And if what I'm saying is wrong, if everything I'm saying is wrong, I have no regrets because I'm still, I still have a good life and I'm still going to move on. But if I'm right, and people ignore me and, and the other many, many other more important voices than me, then they're going to regret it for eternity. So that drives me. I've got to get this message out. As long as I have breath, I'm going to get the message out. I'm going to bring people the truth. They can do what they want with it, but I want them to hear it. I want them to read it, and then they can make their own decisions. All right. Since we're talking about your books, what are the titles of your books and where can they find them? Okay, my first book is Final Departure, Death is Never on Time. My second book is Divine Return, Death is Never the End. And you can order them at any bookstore. You can buy them online at uh, Amazon or Barnes & Noble or Books A Million. They're in three formats. They're in Kindle ebook. They're in paperback. And if you want something more sturdy, I have them in the hard copy. So all you have to do is Google uh, you can go to my website. I don't sell books from my website, but I do have links to the um, product pages. And so they're available. And I, I'll add that I wrote my second book. I wasn't planning to write a second book. But when I wrote the first book, I had people coming up to me saying, hey, you, 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 I, I love your story, but I want more. Write another one. So, okay. So I I sat down and, and it took a couple of years to put the second book together. So now they're both out and I'm working on a third. What is the name of your website? The name of my website can be reached. It's Evidence for Eternity. You can also reach it by Jeff Walton, jeffwaltonbooks.com. So either, uh, 
either address, we'll bring it up on Google, and then uh, you can go through it and uh, you can contact me. I'd be glad to answer any questions. I have people that will read the book or one of the books, and they'll send me an email, and I'll answer you. And I'll give you my best my best effort. You may not like it, but I'll tell you what I think is true. You mentioned that you're working on another book. Do you have anything else going on that you want us to know about? Well, I'm also uh, recording Final Departure as an ebook, or excuse me, as a uh, audio book, because a lot of people said, "Look, I, I I love to read. I just don't have time. But if you have an audio book, I can put it in my car or whatever in my you know on my phone, and I can I listen to it while I'm doing other things." So. I'm about uh, two thirds of the way through uh, Final Departure. And depending on how well that goes, then I'll probably try to record Divine Return. Now I'm doing it myself. I've created my own recording studio because quite frankly, I want to be able to emphasize the important points and speak from the, as, as the author. And I, I just don't think somebody reading your book can necessarily do it justice. After watching this podcast, people may want to reach out to you and ask you questions. Are you open to that? And if so, how do they contact you? Yes, I, I'd love to hear from people. They can uh, reach me at uh, jeffwaltonbooks at gmail.com. They can go to my website and they can contact me there. Uh, I also have blogs that I do. And I actually have done a couple of blogs on NDEs. So if they want a written resource, they can go in and click for free and download some information sheets that I have on NDEs. And um, please contact me if you have any questions. I'll answer you. I'll get back to you. Again, you may not like what I say, but I'll try to be as truthful as possible. All right, Jeff, before we finish up, do you think you can leave us with one last positive message? I don't want people to think that my focus on hellish NDEs um, isn't necessarily a balanced focus. It's not. I think we live in a beautiful world created by a beautiful God who loves us and that the afterlife for many, many people is wonderful. And I think that if we focus just on the negative will, it'll drag us down. I think you've got to focus on the positive, particularly in this day and age. I think look all around, look at the beautiful sky, the trees, the flowers. These are gifts for us to enjoy. Those those precious moments that you have with family and friends and loved ones, whether it's a nice meal or just a, a gentle conversation, they are blessings. Enjoy them. You certainly can enjoy that for the rest of eternity if you just sort of open your eyes, dig the facts out, and get your life on the right track. I was on the wrong track. I can tell you that. I was headed in the wrong direction. But thank God that um, Bill Weiss's book, opened my eyes and got me in the right direction. And I know that all of you, all of your viewers can certainly turn things around if need be and have a wonderful life and a wonderful afterlife. All right, Jeff, thank you for that message. And thank you so much again for being my guest. I really appreciate you and I wish you the best. Oh, thank you, Jeff. It's been a real pleasure and a privilege. Likewise. Have a great rest of your day over there. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Take care. Mm -hmm.